The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, we, uh, we come to you this morning as a people who are busy with the start of the fall semester, God. And yet we come to bring our busyness to you, to lay down our lives before you, God, that you would direct us, that you would change us, that you would transform us into the people you have called us to be, both for your glory, but also for our joy, Lord. And so, God, I pray that as we look at the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Lord, that it would be buried deep into our hearts, God, that we would not apply it to others, but would apply it to ourselves, and that we would become more enamored with your love and your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is often said there are two types of people in the world. There are the people that can whistle loud, like Marv, and there are the people who can't. There are Mac people, and there are PC people. There are night owls, and there are early birds. There are people who cut their sandwiches side to side, and smart people that cut their sandwiches corner to corner. As I tell my kids, it tastes better that way. There are people who are feelers. There are those who are thinkers. There are those who have clean desks and those who clean their desks periodically. There are those who have email inboxes that are cleaned out and those that have hundreds, if not thousands of emails in their inbox. That drives me crazy. There are those who use napkins and there are those who don't. You have heard this phrase, there are two types of people in this world, because what it does is it draws a dichotomy. And what a dichotomy is, it is a contrast between two things that seem to oppose one another. Now, the problem with many of the dichotomies that we use in our culture is that those two things actually are not opposed to one another. For example, I have a PC computer that I love, but I also have a Mac tablet and a Mac phone that I love. I don't often use napkins, but in special occasions like eating hot wings, a napkin is necessary. And so these dichotomies are not often true. But today Jesus is going to end his sermon on the mount by telling us about two types of people this world. And it is a true dichotomy and a serious dichotomy. Jesus will talk about two gates. He'll talk about two teachers. He'll talk about two trees, two types of fruit, two religions, two foundations, two builders. And all of this is to show us that there is a dichotomy that is no laughing matter. There is a dichotomy in this world that is a matter of life and death, truth and lies, heaven and hell. And so today Jesus is going to challenge us to choose what type of person we will be. If you would, please open up to Matthew chapter 7. We will be looking at verses 13 through 29 today. It is page 1029 in the children's Bible, page 812 in the red Bible. As I mentioned, today is the last in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Next Sunday, we are going to be starting the book of Acts, as you heard here earlier from the small group leaders. And in the book of Acts, we're going to be looking at our story, our our family story, our history, but also God's mission uh, for the church. And so we're very excited about that. 
As we look at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, I am reminded that every good sermon has a great conclusion. And Jesus' conclusion here is invasive. It's challenging. It's sobering. It's confronting. Because Jesus is now taking these ideas and these thoughts that he's been talking about throughout Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And he's saying, now you need to do something with it. Now you need to make a decision. And so today, Jesus is calling each and every one of us to make a response. So let's read together Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 29. Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the wide is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the flood came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us many great things. Many have titled this the greatest sermon ever preached. But at the end here, Jesus demands a response from every single one of us. Jesus starts his conclusion with this demand in verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate. And then he sets up his first dichotomy, these two different gates that exist. He goes on and says, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. What do we see about this wide gate? Well, it is a gate that many people go through. In fact, it is a gate that the majority of people go through. It is the easy gate. It is the gate that has the path of least resistance. It is the gate that is most popular. It is a well-traveled gate. But it is a gate that leads to destruction. 
And then Jesus talks about another gate. Verse 14, he says, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This gate is a gate that is not traveled by the majority of people. This gate is a gate that in some ways is very hard to get through. It is a gate that is difficult, but leads to life and life abundantly. And so you can imagine a gate in a city wall. And Jesus is describing to us these two gates and these two cities. And he's describing what is behind those gates, what is inside of those cities. And he does it with these dichotomies throughout the rest of his conclusion. He's going to tell us in some ways what is behind door number one and what is behind door number two. And then he's going to tell us, choose which gate you will go through. And so first, Jesus starts by telling us that there are two types of teachers. Verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These false teachers disguise themselves very well. They disguise themselves as sheep, which is synonymous for being a person of God, one of the people of God, a church member, a church person. These people will use Bible terms. They might seem at the very surface level, very orthodox in their beliefs, but in reality, they are murderers. They are ravenous wolves. This word ravenous is actually very interesting. It's a word that means to rob or to extort. And so these wolves come in and they try to steal the sheep of God. They try to steal people from God and bring them through the wide gate. Jesus goes on to teach us how to identify these dangerous and false teachers. Verse 16, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes, which grapes are a good fruit, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? What's the answer? No. Are figs, which is a good fruit, from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Now, Jesus mixes a lot of tree metaphors here together, but one of the metaphors he's using is saying that every tree, every teacher bears fruit of some sort, and you have to investigate and get to know them to know and see if the fruit is good or if the fruit is bad. Now, the question for us is, what is good fruit? What does Jesus mean by good fruit, and what is bad fruit? Well, the American church, historically, the past couple of centuries, has often confused what good fruit is and bad fruit. You know, when we use the term fruitful, a lot of times we mean to multiply, to grow, to get big, right? And so many times in the church, we see a growing church, a, a large church, and we just assume that this is a healthy church, that it is a sound teacher. In the 1960s and 70s, there was a new era in the church, and it was called the church growth movement. And basically the premise of it was that they were going to get as many people into the church as possible, no matter what it took. And so instead of keeping God the center of their worship, they made people the center of their worship service. And so what happens when you do that is you start compromising, you start leaving out the hard teachings of scripture, and you start giving them a palatable message. You try in some ways to take the kingdom of Christ and make it a wide gate, which is a false dichotomy, or it's a dichotomy that you cannot overcome. 
And so many times what happens in these churches is that they, they water down the gospel. They water down Christ as Lord and they make the gate wide open for people. And then tons of people come through and the churches grow rapidly. Now, I'm certainly not saying that large churches or quick growth is necessarily an indication of, of the watering down of God's word. We are going into the book of the Acts where we'll see how, how the church grows fantastically at the faithful preaching of God's word. But I think when we look at churches and even as we look at ourselves and we see the growth that God has produced here, we need to ask our question. Our, the question is, is the growth because we are, tr- we are compromising on God's word? Is it because we are compromising the gospel to not offend anybody? See, for many pastors, the ones that are the most fruitful are often the ones with the smallest churches. Not always, but many times, fruitful pastors, faithful pastors have small churches because they share the whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of God often offends those that are trying to push their way through the wide gate. Second Timothy 4, Paul is writing to a pastor. And he says, as he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Right? Teachers that will say, come through the wide gate. God is pleased with this. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in to miss. And so if the fruit that God is looking for isn't necessarily church growth, what is he looking for? What is the fruit that God is looking for? Well, Galatians 5:22 of course tells us the fruit of the spirit. That the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. When you look at the qualifications for teachers in, in 1 Timothy and in Titus, it says an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And so you see the fruit that God desires, the fruit that we are to look for in a teacher is not necessarily someone who is the most dy- dynamic, but someone who is faithful to God, someone who is growing in their relationship, someone who is becoming more and more like Jesus and bearing the fruit of the Spirit in their character and in their lives. Many of you know one of my favorite pastors is a guy named Ligon Duncan. And uh, Ligon Duncan, to be honest with you, is not the best preacher I've ever heard, but he is, he's good and he's faithful to the word. A couple years ago, I went to a conference because he was there. Um, it was a small conference of probably 50, 70 pastors. And it was a three or four day conference and he wasn't coming into the second night. And, uh, and so that second night I went and I sat down at the dinner table and I turned to introduce myself to the person next to me. And, and he says, hi, my name is Ligon and immediately I am kind of starstruck, right? Like, I don't know what to say, and I'm a little bit scared. Um, I don't know if you've ever met some of your heroes or people you admire, but, but the majority of time, they, they let you down, you know? Uh, they don't live up to what you think they might be. Um, but as I sat and I talked to him, it was amazing how 
caring of a man he was. He looked at my name tag and he goes, oh yes, Dan from Green Bay, Wisconsin. How are you doing today? How are things in Green Bay going? Yeah, tell me what's happening in Green Bay. What's it like living in Packer country? And then later I saw him in the lobby and I just told him how much I appreciate him and how much he's influenced my own ministry. And he really didn't care about any of that. He just continued to ask me, so tell me what's Tell me about your church. Tell me about ministry. How's your family life going on? And I was just so blown away of the fruit of the Spirit in this man's life. How he exhibited love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness. He happens to have a large church, but he does not compromise God's word. And God's word isn't just preached by him. It is preached to him. And he is changed and transformed by it. You know, as I look at this calling, it is a frightening and sobering reminder to me, and I'm sure to Pastor Chad, and to those that lead community groups, that God is calling us not just to be speakers of the word, but that we must have the word transform us and bear fruit in our lives. See, the fruit that God desires in teachers and the fruit that God calls us to look for in teachers are those that are faithful to God's teaching and though not perfect, are increasingly growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so this is the first dichotomy that he's revealing to us. There are false teachers that bring people through the wide gate, and there are true teachers who bring people through the narrow gate. The false teachers have bad fruit. The true teachers have good fruit. Jesus goes on with another dichotomy. He talks about two types of religion. And this part is potentially the scariest words that Jesus has ever uttered in his ministry and probably the most relevant, to be honest, to Green Bay, Wisconsin. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, when, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is such a scary statement by Jesus because you see these people are orthodox in their belief. They, they call Jesus Lord. That's good. Not only are they orthodox in their beliefs, but they're also passionate. They say, Lord, Lord, which, which, which shows how passionate they are about Jesus. They're crying out to him. Not only that, they do amazing things in the name of Jesus. Any of you cast out a demon anytime recently? I mean, this isn't stuff that we do. And so they did all these things for Jesus, and yet they will stand before Jesus on the day of judgment. And he will say, away from me. I never knew you. He will not say, I used to know you. He said, I never knew you, meaning I was never in relationship with you. You see, with these words, Jesus is confronting and warning the religiously comfortable people of our world. He's actually confronting the religious majority of our world. Over my sabbatical, as maybe you know, I got to uh, do some interviews so asking people about their spiritual journeys and what they believe and things like that. And it was a, a wonderful exercise. I so thoroughly enjoyed hearing what people had to say. But one of the fascinating things to me is I would ask them about their, their religious um, journey, and they would tell me about all these things that they did, how they went to church, how they used to teach religion classes, and how they would lead um, camps, and how they would do all of these amazing things. 
And then I would get to the question, do you believe in heaven and hell? And they would say yes. And I would say, so if you were to stand before God and he would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And it was amazing how people were so taken back by the question, how they had no idea what to say. But let me ask you that question. What would you say? If you stood before God on the day of judgment, like these men seem to be doing in this passage, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Look at these religious people's answer. Verse 22, and I'm going to translate it more literal from the Greek because there is a word that I want to know that is emphasized in this passage. In the Greek, that's not necessarily emphasized in the English. Verse 22 Many they will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, not in your name did we prophesy, and in your name we cast out demons, and in your name we do many mighty things. Do you notice the underpinning of their acceptance before God? Do you notice the foundation of what they believe gains them entrance into heaven? They gave the answer that I think most people in the world and most people in Green Bay give. Why, Lord, should you let me into heaven? Look at all the things that I have done for you. Look at all the amazing things I have done in your name. Look at it. That's why I deserve to get into heaven. But Jesus says to them, away from me. I never knew you. If you are here and you're standing in your own religious pedigree, that you went to church, that you went on mission trips, all in Jesus' name, And that is when you stand before heaven and you say, this is why you shall let me into heaven. You will be surprised by those chilling and awful words in which Jesus will say to you, away from me, I never knew you. See, this is not our heart response. This is the response of every religion, every religion except Christianity. Even even unreligious people, this is their answer. Why should I let you into heaven? Because I'm a pretty good person. Because I do good things. Because I served at church. Because I went on mission trips. Because I did this. Because I did that. But what the Bible and what Jesus and Christianity teach us is so opposite of that. To the question, why should God let you into heaven? The answer is, on my own merit, you shouldn't. You see, entering heaven is not because of anything you do or have done but it's because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, not when we were religious, not when we had great church attendance, not when we went on mission trips or cleaned our life up or kicked that sin out of our life or, or stopped messing up, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, on your behalf, Jesus lived the only life worthy of meriting heaven. But then he also died the death that you and I deserve as punishment for our sins. And he gives to us his righteousness and takes upon himself our sin that we can be uh, accepted before a holy God and live with him for all eternity. You know, we sang this just earlier in the song, Rock of Ages. We sang, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite, no meaning, like zealous all the time. Could that do it? Could my tears, my mourning, my grieving forever flow? Could that win me heaven? And it says, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And then he turns to that judgment day. And he says, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. And then rock of ages, cleft for me, opened up a hole, a chasm where we can sink into. Let me hide myself in thee. You see, the kingdom of heaven is not for those who have one foot on Jesus and one foot on their religious merit. It is for those who stand firmly and only both feet upon Jesus. Now, in this verse, Jesus is not only warning us against putting confidence in our own goodness, but Jesus also warns us against having confidence in a superficial, empty, and fruitless profession of faith in Christ. Jesus says this in verse 21. You can look with me. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, some people who say Lord, Lord will, right? But not everyone. He says, But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus is answering this question. How do I know if I'm going to heaven? How do I know if I will get into heaven? Jesus says, this is your litmus test. Your litmus test is not simply empty words or lip service. It's what you do with your life. If if you're obedient to the will of the Father. Now there is an initial obedience that the Father calls us to. Jesus talks about in John 6. He says, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so that is the initial obedience that God calls us to, to trust in Jesus. But there is a result of that, which is the continual and growing obedience. John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, the will of the Father is that we believe in Jesus in such a way that it actually changes and transforms who has authority over us. That in believing in Jesus, you make Jesus not only your Savior, but that you make him actually Lord and commander of your life. And you bear the fruit of having a new master. And so what Christ is warning against here is an outward profession of faith in Christ that has no residence in your heart and no influence on your actions. You might know the right answer to the question, why should I let you into heaven? But the Lord is not looking for lip service. He is looking for you to surrender all of your life to him. And so to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that our obedience to the father contributes to our salvation, but that growing obedience to the father is evidence of our salvation. Let me give you another tree illustration since we're into trees today. Uh, In my backyard, we had a tree. And the first year that we moved in, it was nice. It had leaves. And then the second year and third year, the leaves quit coming back. And so we cut down the tree and we got rid of it. We still have to get rid of this stump, but we cut down the tree because it was dead. And so how do we know that the tree was dead? Because there were no leaves, right? Which means that the leaves do not make the tree alive, right? but the leaves are a sign of whether the tree is alive or not. Do you see what I'm saying? So in other words, leaves don't give the tree life, but they're evidence that there is life in the tree. 
like leaves, Jesus is telling us that our doing the will of the Father does not give us life, but it is evidence that God has given us eternal life in Jesus Christ, and he has taken over our life, and he is bearing fruit in our life. There are many in Green Bay, and maybe here today, I'm sure there are some here today, that would claim to follow Jesus. They claim Jesus as their Savior but they refuse to make him Lord over all of their life. They follow Jesus' commands that they agree with, but refuse to follow the commands they disagree with. You know, many people look at this Sermon on the Mount and they admire it, and we'll talk more about this later. They'll say, you know, I love what Jesus says about loving one another, but I think his views on money are a bit extreme. Or I love what Jesus has to say about turning other the cheek. I think that's wonderful. But his views on sexual purity are just outdated. Or they'll say, I love Jesus calling his disciples to share the light of the gospel with a dark world, but that's not really my cup of tea. What Jesus is teaching us in this passage is that you cannot claim Jesus as your savior if you refuse to claim him as your Lord. And one of the greatest evidences that Christ is your Lord is not when you obey the commands that you agree with, but when you obey the commands that you disagree with, or the commands that are difficult for you. And so Jesus says there are two religions. There is the wide gate that believes that what we do contributes to our salvation. That is the majority of the world. And then there is the narrow gate that believes we contribute nothing to our salvation, but our obedience is evidence of our salvation. The final dichotomy Jesus gives is two foundations or, or two builders And in some ways, this is just an illustration of what he's already communicated in his conclusion. But he says this in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You know, it's interesting when we get to this end of this passage, and we'll see it in a little bit, the people admire and they appreciate Jesus's teaching. Um, They actually like it. But what Jesus is saying here is he's actually calling us to do more than just appreciate his teaching commentator Leon Morris says this, it is one thing to hear what Jesus said and even approve of it. It is quite another to obey. And so Jesus is calling us as we build our life to build our life, not on the teachings of this world or the passions of our flesh, but to build our life on the teachings of Jesus. James says it this way. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. I didn't know this, but this week I saw a note in the ESV study Bible that in hot summers, the sand around the Sea of Galilee would actually get very hard, probably because it was dried out would be my guess. And sometimes people would build on top of it. But a wise builder would know that they need to dig down, dig out the sand so they can build their structure on the rock, on the bedrock, so that it could stand. And here, Jesus is calling us to not do the easy build out, not to build on sand, but to go through the narrow gate, the hard gate, and to build our life on the teachings of Jesus Christ. Verse 27, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell in great What's the fall of it? Now, this may be talking about this life 
You know, if you, if you build your life on academic success and then you find someone who is smarter than you, it tears you apart, right? If you build your life on getting married and having a great and happy marriage, but the Lord has chosen not to give that to you yet, you're single or, or your marriage is very difficult, everything falls apart, right? Or if you want that perfect and happy family, but something happens to them or, or there's friction or there's tension, then you're destroyed because you have built your life on those other things. You know, whatever makes you angry is a good sign of what you're building your life upon. And so if you have anger, if you have frustrations, it might be good to say, Lord, what am I worshiping? What am I idolizing? What am I building my life on that has been swept out from me that is making me so angry? But then there is another build out, which is on upon the rock. And it will stand up in this life. When trials come, when storms come in this life, it will endure. But not only that, it will endure when the ultimate storm comes. When God's just judgment comes over the world. And you'll say, I am not on my own foundation, but I am on the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. And it will stand then and for all eternity. And so... To wrap up kind of what Jesus is saying here in these dichotomies. Jesus is saying there's, there's two gates, right? There's a narrow gate, which is hard, but leads to life. And there is the wide gate, which the majority of people go through. He's saying there's two teachers. There's false teachers and there's true teachers. There's two religions. There's a wide gate religion, which says, you know, if you're a good person, you can get into heaven. But then there is a narrow gate religion, which says that it is only by Christ alone that we are saved. And then finally here, there are two foundations and two builders. And we are called to build not on the teachings of this world, but to build on the contrary teachings of Jesus, the ones that are contrary to the teachings of the world. And so as we look at these dichotomies, the question is, what is the point that Jesus is trying to get across? Why is he telling us that there are two gates and two teachers and two religions and two builders and two foundations? Well, you see, all of this is to communicate that there is only one Lord and that there is only one Savior, and it is him, Jesus Christ. Verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished, literally struck with amazement at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, when you first read this, or at least when I first read this, I thought he was knocking the scribes. Like, scribes are just these puppet people that don't have a lot of authority. But as I thought more about I think scribes had quite a bit of authority. They were, they were religious folk that were also kind of lawyers and, and, and academic people who taught. And so they'd be like a religious professor at a seminary or something like that. And so they had quite a bit of authority over the way that the culture went and things like that. But they're saying Jesus' authority was so much greater and so much different than the authority of the scribes. His authority was just different. Not the same authority as them, but a different authority. And as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus does teach with a whole nother authority. He doesn't just teach what previous rabbis and teachers and commentators taught about the Bible. He claimed to be the teacher. Jesus did not only speak on the authority of others, but on his own authority. And not only that, but Jesus speaks as if he is the ultimate authority. I mean, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it starts out with Jesus saying this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. 
I mean, who says that? I don't say that. I don't say, hey, you know what? If you leave here and people bash you because of me, you're blessed by God because of that, right? I don't say that. Who says that? Jesus goes on to say, you know, you have heard it said, right? All the commentators, all the wise rabbis have said this. They've translated this about the scripture. But I say to you this. Jesus says, you want to know how to pray? Let me teach you how to pray. And then we get to today's passage and Jesus actually says, your entire eternity depends on how you view me. Who says that? I hope none of you do. C.S. Lewis says there's really only three options when you come to Jesus. He can't just be a good teacher. He's either a liar, right, who makes people think he's more important than he actually is, or he's a lunatic who thinks he's the center of the universe but really isn't and needs to be locked up, or he's Lord, and he demands our obedience in our life. You see, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed at his teaching and his wisdom and his authority, but that was not enough. Jesus didn't just want their admiration. He wanted them. I've shared this story before, and I'll end with this. But I have a picture this time, so it makes it new. <laughs> On June 30th, 1859, there was a man named Charles Blondin. And he was the first man in history to walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And over 25,000 people gathered to watch him walk this 1,100 feet from one side to the other. He had no safety harnesses, no safety net or anything, and so it was a, a daring effort. The slightest slip would have been fatal to him. When he reached the Canadian side, the crowd burst into cheers. Well, over the next couple of days, I guess because the line was still up, he decided to do it several more times. And he one time walked across on stilts, which would be amazing to see. Um, Another time, he actually brought a chair and a stove out, I'm guessing a cooking stove, and he sat down and cooked himself breakfast and ate on the middle of the wire. Another time, he took a wheelbarrow cross with a load of 350 pounds. And so I think the picture's here. There he is right there. There's spectators watching him from a bridge. But here he is with a wheelbarrow, evidently 350 pounds. And when he gets to the other side, of course, the crowd is cheering and roaring and they're excited. And he sees one particularly enthusiastic man. And he looks at the man and he says, do you think I could take a person across this wire with someone in the wheelbarrow? And the man's like, of course you could. And he says, do you think I could take you in this wheelbarrow across the wire? He goes, of course you could. And he says, get in. And the man refused. (laughs) To admire and applaud the teachings of Jesus is one thing. Almost everyone does that in the entire world. But Jesus is calling you through a narrow gate. Jesus is calling you to entrust your entire life to him to get to the other side. Jesus is actually calling you to get into the wheelbarrow. See, it's so interesting. If you look in chapter 8, The very first verse, people are following Jesus. But in the last verse, people are telling Jesus to go away. They don't want him. They don't want his teaching. They don't want his miracles. They don't want his transformation. And so the question that we are left is, which one are you? Are you the one going through the narrow gate, trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, founding your life on his teachings? Are you going through the hard gate? Are you getting into the wheelbarrow? You know, in a minute, we're going to sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. For some of you, this is a recommitment to surrender all of your life to him. We do this every Sunday. 
But for some of you, maybe you are surrendering your life to Jesus for the very first time. If that's where you're at, I'd encourage you just to to mark on the connection card and let us know that because I'd love to connect with you. I'm not going to broadcast it to the church, but I'd love to talk to you more about that. But today Jesus is asking us, he's telling us that there are two types of teachers, two types of religions, two types of foundations, but there is only one Lord and there is one Savior. And so we should pass through the narrow gate. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is so much here in your conclusion that is challenging, but God, pray that you would work deep in our hearts, Lord. God, I pray if there are those here today that maybe have grown up in the church, but have walked away from you or have followed you half-heartedly, Lord, that you would challenge them, Lord, to surrender all of their life to you, God, that they would turn to you, that they would get in the wheelbarrow, that they would entrust their very life to you as their Lord and Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It emboldens God's people and it proclaims God's victory for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us to come and to give thanks for all of the trials in our life. And so we come to give thanks for the adversities in our life, for the trials in our life, knowing that in those adversities, you are doing something beautiful. And Lord, we confess that often we do not see it that way. Often we seek to, to, to run away from it as fast as possible. But God, pray that you would give us the audacious faith in the midst of the adversity to glorify you in all things. Lord, as we turn to your table, again, we are reminded 
that the adversity that you faced on our behalf at the cross is what led to our salvation. And we praise you for that. God, pray as we take these elements that we be reminded of the great salvation that we have in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.